0: The Global Story provides fresh perspective on the stories that matter with me, Katya Adler, and the BBC's worldwide network of journalists and reporters. Coming soon from the BBC World Service. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
1: This is World Business Report from the BBC World Service. Hello, I'm Rahul Tanda. Thank you so much for joining us. Plenty coming up on the programme as always. We're going to hear from a business that uses Open AI after this week's event. Are so they now looking elsewhere? And we'll take you to India to bring you the latest on those workers stuck in a tunnel. At the moment, it's like we're there. We're knocking. Yeah. We know the guys are on the other side, but we can't get in. We're going to ask, how common are these accidents in one of the world's fastest? Growing economies. But we're going to start the program with those shock results in the Dutch elections, where negotiations are now taking place to form a coalition government after the far right Freedom Party pulled off a surprise election victory. These voters gave a mixed reaction to the election success of Gert Wilders.
0: That the PVV became the
2: biggest party, I feel deeply ashamed for being Dutch. That we are going down that
3: route, a real shame.
1: The
3: people have spoken. Let's see how the coalition talks go. I think it's really surprising, but
1: rather good, I think. The PVV
0: is obviously quite extreme with wanting to ban mosques and the Koran. I don't agree with that, but I think he understands that he can't get other parties to work with him on that. I think he'll have to tone down his views anyway.
1: Let's bring in Esther Barendrecht, who's chief economist at Robo Research in the Netherlands. Esther, thanks so much for joining us here on the program. There's a lot of coverage of the events that have taken place in the Netherlands over the last 24 hours. Um, is there any sense yet of what coalition government's going to come into power and what their economic policies might be?
4: Well, I would say it's very early days. But it's, it's good to note indeed that so um, this is a big win for the Freedom Party. They have gained about a quarter of the votes. Uh, it also means that they still need other parties to form a coalition. In fact, at least two to form a majority in the lower house. If then they would also want a majority in the Senate, in the um, in the Senate, that would uh, involve a, a, at least more, a, two more uh, parties. So uh, there is still a road to go, and this will definitely take some time. Okay, also, because everyone has to get used to this new situation on um, on policies. So the Freedom Party is clearly it's a, it's a it's a nationalist party, it's a eurosceptic party, and it's it's uh, economically a populist party. So they have clear wishes for more social spending, such as lower pension ages, higher minimum wages, ha- higher benefits, lower lower taxes, but they have much less clear views on how that should be financed. And then if uh, they are looking for coalition partners, I think they will first look at the right of the political uh, spectrum, and that's where they will uh, find parties who actually touch a lot of value to sound public finances. So you can see the challenge coming up in the the coalition um, negotiations.
1: Okay, stay with us because I want you to have a listen to this because we've been speaking to Ingrid Tyson. She is the president of the Dutch Confederation of Industry and Employers. She told me about some of the complications economically for a coalition, whoever comes to power.
0: Yes, it can be a complicated process to come to a coalition. But, well, we are used to that. Uh, last time it uh, lasted almost uh, a year. And that, well, it's not that business likes that, of course, because we want uh, a country that is uh, that is governed, stable. So, yeah, that's not what we are looking forward to. But uh, we will see how it, how it works out.
1: When it does work out, there are a number of economic challenges that will face the new government. What is the number one economic challenge that needs to be dealt with?
0: Well, I think uh, the number one economic challenge is our labour market, which is extremely tight and it is also expected to stay extremely tight. So that is one of the main economic challenges. Another extremely important uh, challenge for the Netherlands and also one of the explanations why there was such a landslide victory for a couple of parties, including Mr Wilders, is that we have a a huge problem at the housing market. So especially young people are not able to find an affordable home.
1: Can I pick up on that housing point that you raised there? Why have there not been enough homes built in the Netherlands?
0: It has been, I think, a couple of things adding up in uh, in the last, let's say, five to ten years. So, uh, of course, we are a densely populated country. Uh, permits, procedures take too much time. And then again, of course, inflation. So the raising costs of building houses, raising interest rates. Well, all of that together made this, this huge problem uh, for our country. And then combined with migration numbers that were quite quite big last year so that is of course a uh, combination of factors that is uh, one of the explanations for uh, what happened in our country.
1: Because the problem is when there's a housing crisis whether it's people buying houses whether it's people renting houses those prices go up and generally that means if you're a company you're gonna have to pay your workers a little bit more aren't you?
0: Yes yes of course also but what we really emphasize that we just have to build because uh, raising salaries, uh, giving people more money doesn't give them giving them a home. So the problem is really structural that we just have too little, too few houses.
1: Can I ask you about another policy of Gert Wilders in particular? We had what was called Brexit here when the UK left the EU. He wants to have Nexit when the Netherlands would leave the EU. What's your reaction to those thoughts?
0: Yes, well, Mr. Wilders already expressed that an exit is not a priority. Well, we know also that all the other parties in the Netherlands don't want it at all uh, because, well, we are all aware that, that we are, as a country, of course, far too small to provide, provide for our own safety and, and also that we earn over, over 30% of our national income abroad.
1: Can I ask you a final question? We don't know whether Gert Wilders is going to be forming the government in the Netherlands, but let's say he does. Do you worry about the impact that could have on foreign investment? He is a very controversial character.
0: Well, the Netherlands will always be governed by a coalition. So there will at least be three parties needed to form a coalition. And well, the Netherlands is so much aware of well, how small we are, maybe not economically, but, but as, a, as a country and how important our in, international relations are for us and that we do earn, well, a great, great part of our national income by this international relations and doing international business that a new coalition will absolutely uh, take care of it, uh, I'm convinced.
1: But it would be a coalition. But if he was the figurehead of that coalition, that could cause problems for foreign investment.
0: Well, but if you look at the parties who uh, might be his coalition partners, these are, for example, uh, Mark Rutte's Conservatives. Well, they are very uh, worried always about the investment climate in the Netherlands. So, well, they have to, would have to, to, to come to a solution and... Um, so I think one of the, um, you could say, one of the, the, the good things of uh, politics in the Netherlands is that we always, always need a coalition to govern our country.
1: Ingrid there. let's bring Esther back in uh, quickly here. Esther, one thing that struck me here with a lot of the conversations about the economy in the Netherlands at the moment, it doesn't seem to be in that a good a position. Can you sum up what are the situations facing many people who live there right at the moment? What are their main challenges?
4: Yeah, so I think uh, the um, voters have been very concerned about their purchasing power. With high inflation, they've simply seen had the, the cost of living increase and their purchasing power uh, erode. And that has been uh, uh, an important theme in the elections. And I agree with Ingrid Thyssen, uh, that the housing market has also plays an important role because we simply have a lack of uh, new affordable houses. Um, the truth is that solving this would really require a comprehensive and fundamental reform with, yeah, the new political situation that has not become easier, I would say.
1: Esther, thank you so much for joining us here on the programme. I want to bring in Michael Curry, Investment Director at Hargreaves Landstand, who sat in the studio with us. Thank you so much for joining us.
5: Thanks for having me.
1: I want you to have a listen to this, if you don't mind, because the day after people you will remember here, Brexit, June 2016, voted to leave the European Union. Gert Wilders predicted that the EU would come to an end.
3: Today, it's not, not even the
1: beginning of the end of the European Union. The end of the European Union is a matter of time, and not, not such a
0: long time. I will predict you that the European Union is more or less dead,
1: only there are a lot of politicians that can get used to the idea. Interesting to hear that. We don't know what's going to happen in the Netherlands with the EU, but it would be a concern for the EU that once again, we have a politician who may run a country saying, I don't want to be part of it.
5: Absolutely, and he certainly is no friend of Brussels. Of course, it's not a guarantee that he will become prime minister. There will be long, retracted negotiations. But if we do consider that a euro skeptic, as it were, on the EU summit table, it will completely change the dynamic.
1: And we heard there that there are serious challenges that the economy is facing in the Netherlands. But it is an important part of the EU. So to have a country that is significant within the Even raising that question will be an even more concerning factor.
5: Absolutely. And the bit I found really interesting is the economic challenges that the Netherlands is facing is the same economic challenges we are facing in the rest of Europe and in the UK. Things like inflation, like people's spending power weakening, the housing crisis, the lack of enough housing for the next generation. So, those are all challenges we're seeing across Europe. And we are seeing this rise of far right leaders in Belgium and in Hungary with these very, very divisive views on migration. And that That does really um, raise some concerns. On the flip side, of course, they do have Brexit to learn from, don't they?
1: Well, yeah, I suppose it depends what side of the fence (laughs) you stand on that particular decision that was taken. You're listening to World Business Report here on the BBC World Service. Every
0: weekday morning, wake up to one
1: big story from the African continent.
0: Where
2: does Africa stand in this conflict?
0: How is Africa responding to the refugee crisis? With me, Alan Kasuja and Africa Daily.
2: So what's it like living in an area where Boko Haram are active?
0: One story from Africa for Africa. Our story. Africa Daily. That's Africa Daily from the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
1: Let's move to South Asia now because rescue workers drilling to free. 41 workers trapped in a tunnel in India's Uttarakhand state are close to breaking through to them. Remember, those workers were building the tunnel. Well, part of it caved in on the 12th of November due to a landslide. Bhaskar Kulbe is one of the officers involved in the rescue efforts.
4: But I am happy to tell you that the entire steel which was obstructing the free movement of the pipe inside has now been removed.
1: Arnold Dix is from the International Tunneling Association, which is helping with these rescue operations. At the moment, it's like we're there, we're knocking. Yeah. We know the guys are on the other side, but we can't get in. So this particular incident has led to a bigger question, the safety within the construction industry. It's a point that I put to Professor Anjana Karamuttal, who's from the Indian Institute of Management.
2: I wish I could tell you that this is a fairly uncommon incident, but the data shows otherwise. Construction accidents in India are alarmingly common. Recently in Maharashtra, some 20 construction workers were crushed to death when a crane collapsed on them on a highway. In August, two railway construction bridges collapsed and at least 26 workers were trapped and killed. Just in the state of Maharashtra, which is a commercial hub of India, there's been a threefold increase year on year since 2021 in terms of construction worker fatality. And even according to the report by the ILO, India has the highest rate of construction worker fatality worldwide. So sadly as as unfortunate as this incident is uh, i'm sorry to say but it's not as uncommon as it should be
1: the ilo is the international labor organization you said it was alarmingly high are you hmm. finding that those numbers are increasing is the problem getting better or is it getting worse at the moment
2: it is getting worse at the moment but we should realize that in terms of binding actual data in terms of worker fatality is near impossible in an economy like ours one of the main reasons Reasons for that is that the construction workers in India are migrant labourers mostly, and they are mostly in the informal sector. What that means is these are these are day-wage laborers who usually don't have a written contract. Their job is transient. Their association with a, a, a labor agency is transient. And they are constantly on the move. So when accidents or fatalities happen to them, they are usually not covered by the legal provisions of the country, and that makes it difficult to document their case given their poor socioeconomic condition, usually what happens is that a financial compensation is offered and the issue is just covered up. So a lot of these cases... Are happening, but they remain undocumented.
1: I was in India recently, and one thing that I saw was huge development taking place, both of infrastructure, both of building of flats, etc. With this increase in infrastructure, are we seeing mm. the government trying to intervene in this problem and regulate the industry better when it comes to construction?
2: Well, yes and no. There is no dearth of laws in India in terms of the laws that need to be in place to protect construction workers. Several of them are there, starting from the Minimum Wage Act all, all the way to Building and Other Construction Worker Act of 1996. The, the problem is not the shortage of laws. It is in the need to update the laws in line with the changes in the industry and it is also the need to put in place a strong implementation framework that will ensure that people that are the most targeted and the most vulnerable in the construction industry, which is the worker population, is protected. I believe there is definitely a long way for our government to go in order to protect them.
1: There has been a lot of domestic coverage in India. I've seen a lot of coverage on the news channels within the papers and a lot of international coverage of what's happening in Uttar Do you think that that will be a spur to try and improve the problems in the sector that you've described? Or do you fear that after a while it'll fade away again and nothing much will be done?
2: Based on what we have seen in the past, I hope that this incident and all the international coverage it is getting will help to make life a little bit easier for construction workers. Accidents have happened in the past as well, but have the laws necessarily changed? And has the implementation been strengthened to the point where their lives are better? now? No. But that said, has international coverage not brought attention to an important issue that needs government intervention? Yes. So I remain hopeful, but I am also sceptical.
1: Interesting to hear the views of Anjana there. We've still got Michael Curry, who's in the studio with his Investment Director at Hargreaves Landsat. People may have guessed from your accent that you have the South African connection. So you will have heard stories like this before. And it is difficult sometimes from emerging economies, isn't it, to balance development against making sure that the construction industry is conducted in a way that we would hope it would be.
5: Absolutely. I mean, the developing economies are yearning for that uh, investment in infrastructure and and to move forward. But it has to be balanced with the rights of workers. And this issue came to the fore with Qatar. Um, It's something that we saw in in China with China's rapid infrastructure Mm. investment and workers' rights just left on the back burner. Any modern democracy, whether it is in the developed world or the developing world, should take workers' rights into consideration.
1: Yep. Very much so. Right. Let us move on to a story that we have been talking a lot about over the last few days. It may be a holiday in the US, Thanksgiving, but Sam Altman, is still in the headlines there. He is, of course, now back in charge of OpenAI. After this week's developments, it seemed relevant to play this old clip of him.
3: Where companies get in trouble is when they have people that think very differently about what the company should be doing or don't work well together. You don't want that. You do want to hire people that you know and that you trust and that you can work with. But if everyone on the team comes from exactly the same background, you, you do end up developing somewhat of a monoculture, which often causes problems down the road. Not always. Some companies have been successful with that.
1: Mike, interesting to hear Sam Ullman there because his company has been through that. This. Week. What have you made of what has happened? Have you seen things like this before? Does it impact a company's reputation?
5: It certainly does. And I think what is really interesting about the whole saga behind OpenAI, the company behind ChatGBT um, and all the fears around the machines taking over is that what it is uh, battling here is a distinctly human situation, a human affair where the CEO did something that spooked the board and they, and they got rid of him and they've since brought him back. Um, which is which is fascinating in itself. What it has meant is uh, Microsoft, which of course owns half of OpenAI's um, shares, invited him to to join their business. He's since gone back to OpenAI. I think it has the the makings of a Netflix documentary, th- doesn't it? I think
1: it, when you were describing that, I was just thinking that going through my mind. As you said, that it's been an eventful week to say the least. We wanted to see how this week's events have affected companies that use open AI as a key part of their business. So let's speak to Gorovo Buroi. He's CEO of Lexion, a company that uses AI to streamline legal sales and vendor contracts. He's over there in Florida at the moment. Goro, thank you so much for joining us on Thanksgiving. Uh, Some would be thankful that this saga has come to an end when it comes to open AI. But as somebody who uses their products in the business, where does that leave you now? Are you thinking time to diversify, maybe have somebody else on the books as well?
3: Thanks for having me, Rahul, and uh, a happy Thanksgiving to your American listeners. Um, You know, that's on the mind of many companies that are innovating with AI. And thankfully for us, we've been building with AI for five years, and we're in a great position in that the bulk of our AI is owned by us and built in-house. That said... We've been incredibly excited with what large language models bring to the ecosystem, and we have been building new features and enhancements using this tech. But with OpenAI's corporate structure being unstable, this, of course, makes us question their long-term viability as a partner and makes us look towards ways to diversify.
1: So are you looking now? And how easy is it for you to diversify? You know this industry a lot better than we do, but we seem to think that open AI is quite dominant in, in it. Is, is that actually the case?
3: Uh, open AI is, is certainly the front runner in the space today. And I think it's fantastic that Sam is back in charge. I think he's been doing a great job as a CEO, and I think he has a fairly balanced view of the pros and cons of this tech. Um, I also appreciate that there's going to be a new governing structure, but, you know, anytime you're beholden to one technology provider uh, to build your your core tech, you are going to be at risk. I think earlier this year uh, with X, formerly Twitter, changing some of their rules and pricing on APIs, we saw a lot of app developers go out of business or lose significant functionality. So I think that is the challenge. That you know, with with regards to large language models, developers do have alternatives. There are companies such as uh, Google's Google and and their model Bard, or Anthropic and Claude, or even Microsoft's mm. Azure has a hosted OpenAI version that developers can use in addition to open source models like Llama 2 that was provided by Meta to the world.
1: But it's interesting to hear somebody who has OpenAI is an important part of their their business now saying, well, I'm going to have to look elsewhere. Do you, When you talk to other people in the AI industry, is that what they're saying to you? Is that what you've heard a lot of over the last week or so?
3: You know, this has been something that a lot of companies um, that are building on this have been planning for. In in the short term, it means companies like ours, for example, earlier this year, we diversified to being able to also use Azure's version of OpenAI's tech so that we're not beholden just to OpenAI. And we've invested significant amounts in building frameworks where we can quickly test new vendors. So for us, we have thousands of examples of correct answers on how to review a contract. So if tomorrow we try to move to a new vendor, we can quickly run these tests and identify, is this vendor good enough? How much work is there to to get done to close the gap? And so other companies are doing this kind of thing as well. It does require sizable investment and any businesses that haven't invested in this will find it expensive and costly to move.
1: Can I ask you, we don't really know yet why Sam Altman left, but there is a lot of speculation that this is about a much wider split in the world of AI between those who think it's moving too quickly in the business world and it should be slower and others who many people say Sam Altman represents who don't seem to have so much of those fears and think it's important to push on commercially. Has the last week's event mean that people like him now dominate that conversation?
3: You know, I think this is largely a philosophical debate um, because first and foremost, the genie is out of the bottle. This technology is being worked on by numerous well-funded private entities, by nation states, and by open source, uh, by developers all over the world on open source models. So halting just one company's progress isn't going to change the trajectory of this technology. It may be a speed bump at best. So I think it's philosophical on that level. But on the second point, um, I I do think that there is something to Sam's approach. Um, Let's just contemplate, what if OpenAI a year ago just sat on this game-changing tech? Instead of opening it to the world in the form of JAT-GPT and showing society what's coming and what's next, if they had just Mm. kept it as a closed demo and showed it to a few journalists and tech insiders— would that have better spurred competition, better gotten society ready for what's coming? Or would it have allowed us to have the greatest minds today start to work on the problem of how to bring this to society as a net positive?
1: Gaurav, thank you for joining us, answering some questions and posing one at the, at the end as well. Micah, can I bring you in here? It, it is such a fascinating debate. But the clear point is money will keep going into, into AI if people think that is going to be one of the key futures of technology.
5: Absolutely, and I think the lessons we can take from the saga is that AI is going mainstream, whether we like it or not, and a lot of money is going to be flowing that way.
1: Yeah, we've certainly seen that with the likes of NVIDIA's results that came out Mm. this week. Shall we return to South Africa because we've got you in this? Yeah, problems continue to riddle South Africa, and that's to do with thousands of containers being stuck at Durban port port I'm sure you know very well. of Philly is the CEO of the Durban Chamber of Commerce.
0: It's been absolutely terrible. We're the manufacturing hub of South Africa who Mm -hmm. are waiting for parts to actually be able to manufacture some of their products. So some of them have simply shut off their production because they don't have the parts. Others are working on, you know, half time, which is just very terrible because at the end of the day, it's the employees of those companies that are going to be affected. They're not going to get paid.
1: Clearly a difficult situation there, Mike, and reminding us of supply chain problems we used to talk about a lot in the past still occurring in parts of the world.
5: That's right, but I think there's a bit more to the story. Um, if, if we think of Durban, Durban port handles 60% of South Africa's container cargo. Transnet, which is the state-owned enterprise which is responsible for rail ports, pipelines, keeping those in a good state, uh, maintaining them, is losing millions in mm. revenue. Now, they are blaming the weather for this congestion. But really, this is symptomatic of years of not investing in equipment and maintenance. Durban and Cape Town ports, if we look at ports across the world, they are right at the bottom ranking for efficiencies. And companies like Maersk and the like are actually putting penalties on ships that are bringing um, goods into those ports. Now, of course, that in itself is inflationary.
1: It certainly is. Look, it's been a delight to have you on the programme, a delight to have you here in the studio with us as well. Just another story to end the programme with interest rates in Turkey. We talk a lot about them, haven't we, have climbed to 40% as the central bank there continues its battle against inflation. Vivian Nunes will be here with later business programmes. But that is it for World Business
2: Report.